Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. like to do this morning is just share for a fairly brief period of time and then I'll say something a little bit later just before we do the baptisms as well. But um, really felt this week God took me to something which would be helpful for us this morning and it's really blessed me that we've, the focus has so much been today on, on the resurrection, that Jesus has been lifted up, been raised up. The grave couldn't hold him. And um, I'd like to turn you to Genesis 22 and to read and consider something which has to do with our worship, what we've just been doing, has to do with the, um, the full expression of worship, much more than our singing, much more than our Sunday mornings and also has to do with our giving of both material things and uh, many other things as well. And you might look at the heading of that passage and wonder what that's got to do with any of those things. And uh, here we go. This is, this is the story in Genesis, the, um, what would I say, the terrifying story, the awesome story, the incredible story of the time where the Lord asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. You can realize it's a picture of something that's going to come. But um, this is what it says, and we'll read this from Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So early in the morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering, and he set out to go to the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. And in his hand he took the fire and the sacrificial knife and the two of them walked on together. And then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb 
for the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I've sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores, and your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command." It's a, it's a really uh, amazing story, isn't it? Incredible and um, lots of questions. But, um, you know, we read in verse 5 there, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. It's the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. And that, therefore, uh, means a lot to us, tells, something about the nature, tells us something about the nature of worship. And um, so much of this has to do with the cross and the crown, as the baptisms will a bit later on. And it it, it says a few things immediately as we just consider this story. It tells us, first of all, that worship is sacrifice. Me and the boy will go and worship. Worship is sacrifice. We lay down our loved things and we worship God alone. We hold nothing back. It is an expression of, of, the, of the cross at work in us as we come before the Lord in worship and say, Lord, we're, I'm holding nothing to myself. I'm giving you everything in worship. This is a sacrifice. Sometimes when Richard encourages us to dance in worship, if, you, if your body feels a little bit, you know, less than uh, light, less than lively, maybe that's the time to say, this is a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. It tells me also that worship celebrates resurrection. Because it's interesting, isn't it? The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham understands something. It says in Hebrews, he, 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 he reckoned that God could raise his son from the dead. Me and the boy, we'll, we're going to both come back. Even though I have no idea how this is going to happen. I just know he's told me to sacrifice my son, but, but we will come back. 
Worship is a, is a celebration of resurrection, and that's what we've been doing this morning, celebrating resurrection life, resurrection power. And we do that not just because he's been raised, but because we've been raised. John's Gospel, Jesus says, if anybody believes in me, he's already passed from death to life. We've come alive today. We're here because we're alive. When we we baptize Melody and Kirsty, we'll be celebrating that they've they've moved from death to life. From From a life dead to God to a life alive with God. From death to life. Worship is a celebration of resurrection. Worship celebrates God's provision, doesn't it? Because um, if you look in verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. Abraham, in this first act of worship, this sacrificial act, is reckoning that God will provide for him. And we may have come here today, we may have many legitimate needs. We may not know how the Lord will provide. We may have many, many things we're wrestling with, many decisions to make, many choices But we know God will provide. Our God will provide. Verse 12. Then he said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. It said at the beginning, uh, God was testing him. God never intended that he go through with it, but he wanted to know what was in Abraham's heart. Now he said, I know that you fear God. Worship shows that we fear God. As we worship, as we've worshipped this morning, as we'll continue in a moment, we're coming to say, God, we fear you. And you know, I believe God is always looking to find people that fear him, that will honour him, that that will crown him and exalt him and fear him. Worship releases blessing. Look at the end of this story. Verses 16, 17. Because you've done this thing and have not withheld your only son. By the way, this is, this, is, this is your son, your only son, the one you love. God, God, is, God, is, God is making the, making the sacrifice very clear. He's the one you waited a hundred years for, Isaac. The one I promised you. Your only son, the one you love. He's the one I'm asking you to give to me. But when he's done that, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you. Now look at the blessing that God promises to him. I will bless you. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their... You know, your worship brings a blessing to your offspring. Our worship here this morning, our worship in our lives, means there are generations coming after us who will be blessed. Our offspring will be blessed. God blesses our offspring when we worship Him. Our offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. Our our offspring will be more than conquerors because of our worship, because we hold nothing back. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. I don't know how far and wide our children or our grandchildren are going to go. But the whole earth is going to be blessed by our offspring if we will hold nothing back and come in worship to the Lord. Amen. There's always fruit from worship. 
That's not why we worship. We worship because He's worthy. But there are fruit. There are children who love God, children who will bless others, children who will overcome their enemies. Now I want to just take you into a, another aspect of this. I want to read to you, if I may, from um, a chapter of a book by A.W. Tozer. How many of you have heard of A.W. Tozer? Okay, quite a few. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. And um, there's a chapter in that book. It's chapter two, and you can get this online. And um, it's called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And having talked about this, 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 uh, this story as telling us something about what worship is all about, I also want to move us on to consider how our giving and our offerings and our tithes this morning are also an, an act of worship. And I want to do that by just reading from this uh, chapter. I always find it very moving, so apologies if anything goes wrong in the forthcoming transmission. He, he has a little verse at the top. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's from Matthew 5. Before the Lord God made... You have to concentrate quite hard. It, it's, it's a fabulous description, this, but, but just sort of listen carefully to it. Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of the creation, these are called simply things. They were made for man's uses. But they were never meant, but they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for the first place on the throne. This is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant in universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symbols of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us. A development never originally intended 
God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. Our Lord, our Lord referred to this tyranny of things when he said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life for my sake will find it. And breaking this truth into fragments for our better understanding, it would seem that there is within each of us an enemy which we tolerate at our peril. Jesus called it life and self, or as we would say, the self-life. Its chief characteristic is its possessiveness. The words gain and profit suggest this. To allow this enemy to live is, the end, is in the end to lose everything. To repudiate it and give it all for Christ's sake is to lose nothing at last, but to preserve everything unto life eternal. And possibly also a hint is given here as to the only effective way to destroy this foe, it is by the cross. Let him take up his cross and follow me. The way to deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and a giving up of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing. These are the poor in spirit. They've reached an inward state paralleling the outward circumstances of the common beggar in the streets of Jerusalem. That is what the word poor actually means. These blessed poor are no longer slaves to the tyranny of things. They've broken the yoke of the oppressor, and this they've done not by fighting, but by surrendering. Though free from all sense of possessing, they yet possess all things. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As it is frequently true, this New Testament principle of spiritual life finds its best illustration in the Old Testament. In the story of Abraham and Isaac, we have a dramatic picture of the surrendered life, as well as an excellent commentary on that beatitude. Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough indeed to have been his grandfather, and the child became at once the delight and idol of his heart. From that moment when he first stooped to take the tiny form Awkwardly in his arms, he was an eager love slave of his son. God went out of the way, out of his way, to comment on the strength of this affection. It's not hard to understand. The baby represented everything sacred to his father's heart, the promises of God, the covenants, the hopes of the years, and the long messianic dream. And as he watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of his son till at last the relationship bordered on the perilous. It was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. Take now thy son, said God to Abraham, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I'll tell thee of. The writer spares us a close-up of the agony that night on the slopes near Bathsheba when the aged man had it out with his God. But respectful imagination may view in awe the bent form and convulsive wrestling alone under the stars. Possibly not again until a greater than Abraham wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
did such mortal pain visit a human soul. If only the man himself might have been allowed to die. That would have been easier a thousand times, for he was now old, and to die would have been no great ordeal for one who'd walked so long with God. Besides, it would have been a last sweet pleasure to let his dimming vision rest upon the figure of his stalwart son who would live to carry on the Abrahamic line and fulfill in himself the promises of God made long before in Ur of the Chaldees. How should he slay the lad? Even if he could get the consent of his wounded and protesting heart, how could he reconcile the act with the promise? In Isaac shall thy seed be called. This was Abraham's trial by fire. And he did not fail in the crucible. While the stars still shone like sharp white points above the tent where the sleeping Isaac lay, and long before the grey dawn had begun to lighten the east, the old saint had made up his mind. He would offer his son as God had directed him to do, and then trust God to raise him from the dead. This, says the writer to the Hebrews, was the solution his aching heart found sometime in the dark night, and he rose early in the morning to carry out the plan. It's beautiful to see that while he erred as to God's method, he had correctly sensed the secret of his great heart. And the solution accords well with the New Testament scripture. Whoever will lose for my sake shall find. God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat and then forbade him to lay a hand on the boy. To the wandering patriarch, he now says, in effect, it's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may have the boy sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And then heaven opened, and a voice was heard saying to him, By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, for thou hast, because thou hast done this thing and not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. The old man of God lifted his head to respond to the voice and stood there on the mount, strong and pure and grand. A man marked out by the Lord for special treatment. A friend and favorite of the Most High. Now he was a man wholly surrendered. A man utterly obedient. A man who possessed nothing. He'd concentrated his all in the person of his dear son and God had taken it from him. God could have begun out on the margin of Abraham's life and worked inwards to the center, but he chose rather to cut quickly to the heart and have it over in one sharp act of separation. In dealing thus, he practiced an economy of means and time. It hurt cruelly, but it was effective. I've said that Abraham possessed nothing, yet, this was, yet was not this poor man rich? 
Everything he'd owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, cattle, herds, and goats of every sort. And he also had his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books on theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. After that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never had again the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart. Things had been, things had been cast out forever. They had now become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. The world said Abraham is rich, but the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it to them, but he knew that he owned nothing, that his real treasures were inward and external. I know that's a long reading, but um, I really believe the Lord wanted us to hear that this morning. We're going to worship the Lord together again, but let's, let's rise up and in doing so. Let's just let him challenge our, our ownership of things. The Lord wants us to enjoy all he gives us. But he doesn't want things to become so central in our hearts that we possess them. And as an act of worship, in a moment, we can, we can give to the Lord. It's, it's, it's a small expression. But it's about everything I own. Lord, it's not mine. I have it on trust. Stewardship. My kids are on trust. My grandchild is on trust. So to say that. Ted is here. And we own nothing. It's all his. Shall we stand together and say, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are a wonderful provider. Our worship this morning is an act of sacrifice and love and adoration. That our giving this morning can be an expression of our appreciation for all you've entrusted us with. But Lord, would you deal with us and enable the cross to have its effect in our, effect in our lives so, so that we're, we're not possessive about anything. We say, Lord, you are Lord of all. Lord of our lives. Lord of our finance. Lord of our families. Lord of our talents. Lord of all our treasures. Lord of our families and our children, Lord. Lord of our marriages. Lord of our work. You're Lord of all. And we give you praise this morning. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.